appreciate the presence of everyone here this morning. As has already been uh, pointed out, there are a great many who are not able to be with us, who are uh, sick, and we certainly want to continue to uh, remember them uh, in our prayers. And uh, we're glad that some are able to uh, be back with us who are uh, here this morning. Tonight, we're going to begin a, uh, a new series, uh, an expository series from the uh, book of Colossians. And we hope that you'll uh, plan to be here for uh, that study uh, as we begin that this evening, the four-chapter book of Colossians. In fact, it would be, I think, a good idea if you have time or should take the time maybe to uh, read those uh, chapters, four chapters, not a very long book, and uh, to spend some time at least with part of that book, if not reading through it, in preparation for the beginning of that uh, series. Uh, one of the prison epistles and a great epistle from uh, the Apostle Paul, and so much to glean from that great epistle, as is the case with all of God's Word. And that's true of the Old Testament as well as the New, though certainly we live under the New Covenant. And we are amenable to that New Covenant, but there's so much about the Old that is valuable, as Paul wrote in Romans 15. The things that were written before time were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And certainly, as we've already talked about in our Bible class in the auditorium this morning, that is true concerning the great prophecies of, of the Old Testament. And in our Bible class on Sunday mornings, we're studying the minor prophets, called minor not because they were less important than the so-called major prophets, as we have emphasized, but simply because they produced less material than did the major prophets. But they were not minor in terms of their significance or their influence or in what they wrote and prophesied. And as we mentioned in Bible class, we're going to, since we've been studying Micah, take a very, very significant prophecy from uh, the book of Micah this morning, a prophecy about a subject that uh, should be precious to every single one of us, and that is the subject of peace. Peace is a precious commodity. And when we think of peace from the standpoint of of the absence of uh, external conflict. Certainly that is an important uh, aspect of peace, and certainly we pray for peace in that, in that regard. But the peace about which Micah prophesied is a peace that, uh, that is different, a peace that is uh, an, an inner peace. Peace, perfect peace, we sing in that beautiful hymn, In This Dark World of Sin, the blood of Jesus whispers peace within, and that's the key, peace within. And as Micah prophesied uh, about the year 750 or so before uh, Christ came, 750 B.C., he prophesied about a time that would come, the time which has come, in which a period of peace, that inner peace, would exist. He prophesied about the kingdom of Christ. And so today we're going to look at the prophecy of Peace. And if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, if you'll turn to Micah chapter 4, <clears throat> that will be our text, the first seven verses of uh, Micah chapter 4. And as we begin, let's just simply read together uh, these great verses in this great prophecy. Uh, reading as usual from the New King James translation, Micah prophesies, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, 
and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and rebuke strong nations far, afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, for all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast, and those whom I have afflicted, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation." So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. In these seven verses, we find one of the clearest prophecies ever issued concerning the coming of the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we have virtually the identical words in the first four verses of Isaiah Chapter 2, Isaiah, as we mentioned in Bible class this morning, was a contemporary of Micah. They both uh, overlapped in terms of their work uh, uh, among God's people. Isaiah spent much of his time prophesying uh, in Jerusalem, uh, dealing with the rulers there, whereas Micah was more of the country preacher, as we have, have mentioned. But in Isaiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, you have the prophecy of Isaiah uh, in those first four verses. Uh, almost identical to the early verses we have just read from Micah. Did one prophet copy from another? Why should we conclude such when indeed both prophets were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and certainly prophesied by inspiration? And the indication clearly is that this was a vitally important prophecy, one very much like Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, where in verse 31 beginning, the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream was given and the culmination of that interpretation in Daniel 2 and verse 44 that in the days of these kings, a reference to the Roman kings, the Roman Empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, a kingdom that would break in pieces all other kingdoms, that it would endure forever. That is the same kingdom about which Micah, about which Isaiah prophesied. And that kingdom is not a literal earthly kingdom as some mistakenly contend today that is yet to come. It is a kingdom that has come. It is a kingdom that was prophesied by these men, inspired by God and by others, and that had its fulfillment in the beginning of the last days. Acts chapter 2. When we come to Acts chapter 2, as a part of Peter's sermon is recorded there, we clearly see the application of these Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of the kingdom to this particular Pentecost day following the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And of course, Peter quotes from another of these uh, Old Testament prophets. He quotes from, from Joel in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, and says that this, in other words, what is happening here on this occasion is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes from Joel 2, 28 through 32, And it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall 
dream dreams. He goes on in that prophetic statement to talk about the fulfillment of that prophetic statement. All of these prophets prophesied about a kingdom that was to come, and Peter says that kingdom has come. It came into existence on the first Pentecost, as we said, following the resurrection and the ascension back to the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In fact, in Daniel's book, again, at Daniel 7, in chapter, uh, verse 14 of chapter 7, he came, Daniel saw in a vision, one like the Son of Man, that's the Christ, coming to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father. And when he came to the Ancient of Days, and that's a reference to his ascension back to the Father, he was given a kingdom. He was given a kingdom then, at his ascension, tying in beautifully and harmoniously with what Peter said in terms of the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy, the fulfillment of, of Daniel's prophecy, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. All of these prophets pointed to the coming of the kingdom which took place on that first Pentecost following the resurrection of Christ and his ascension to the Father. That's the prophecy of the kingdom, but it is a prophecy of peace in that kingdom. And that's what is emphasized in these beautiful verses we have read from Micah chapter 4. Let's look at some points now about the prophecy of peace that we can draw from these seven verses that we have read. First of all, in these verses we see the place of peace. There is a specific place where peace is found, and that's vitally important for us to appreciate. That's verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. What does he say? The mountain of the Lord's house. The Lord's house. Tell me, what is the Lord's house today? It's not a building, is it? The Lord's house is not a building, but the Lord's house, the house of God today is a spiritual house. And that's, a, that's the very spiritual house about which, about which Micah was prophesying when he talked about the mountain of the Lord's house. He was not talking about a, a physical building, but he was talking about a spiritual, a spiritual building. And that spiritual building is the church which is called the house of God. Remember 1 Timothy 3.15? Paul writes to Timothy, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The house of God, which is the church of the living God, the mountain of the Lord's house. It is very clear that the prophecy predicts the time when the place where peace is to be obtained would be in a spiritual house, the house of God, which is the church of of the living God, Paul says it is the pillar and ground of the truth. And so the place of peace, the place of peace is the church, the Lord's house, the spiritual building. Not a physical temple, not a physical tabernacle as in former days, but the spiritual house, the church, which is the antitype, the fulfillment of, of that tabernacle of old, the fulfillment of that temple of old. But today, God's place of peace is 
the church. Which tells me, or should tell me, that if I am seeking the kind of peace that is a, a far more precious commodity than, than even the cessation from external hostility, the peace that is eternal, the peace that is lasting, the peace that is within, if I'm seeking that peace, I must find it in the place of peace, and there is but one place where that peace can be obtained. And it is in the church, the Lord's house, about which Micah prophesied. In that place and that place alone can we find peace. It's tragic, isn't it, that there are so many today who deny that, vehemently deny that, and claim that basically peace is not in any way tied to a place, that peace is not linked to, to the place, meaning the church, but that peace, they would admit, is linked to our next point, the prince of peace. You see, it's not the place, it's the prince, they would say. That's very much like the contention that it's not the it's not the plan, it's the man. It's not the, it's not the place that's important, it's the prince that is important. That is the prince of peace. Because the prince of peace is mentioned here in verse 2. A portion of which says, he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. The God of Jacob, God the Father, Christ the Son... That peace is obtained in one place in the church. But that church is established and headed by, ruled by, if you will, the prince of peace. The king of the kingdom. The head of the church. The one who is the prince of peace. The only one who can give peace to those who are willing to come to the place where that peace is obtained. And that is to his kingdom the church. And again, what kind of peace is it? As we've already alluded to, it is not a cessation from external hostility, though that's something that we, that we certainly strive for and should strive for. In fact, we're admonished in Scripture to strive for it. As much as in, in you lies, or as, as much as is possible with you, you live at peace with all men. But this peace is the peace about which Jesus spoke to his disciples in John 14, 27. When he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And then he says, not as the world gives do I give to you. And then he admonishes, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I'm going to give you a peace, the Prince of Peace says, that is not like the world. And the kind of peace for which the world clamors. This is a peace that is within. This is that peace, perfect peace, that is obtained only through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's that great hymn to which we alluded, tells us. It is only possible through the blood of Christ, the blood that was shed on Calvary by the Prince of Peace. For those who will come to that Prince of Peace through obedience to his gospel and allow him to add them to the place of peace upon their simple obedience, that place of peace, as we've already noted, being the church. But that suggests something else. Those who will come to him suggest there's a path of peace. And indeed, Micah tells us there is. He will teach us of his ways, and what? And we shall walk 
in his paths. Walking in his paths. Following his lead. When he comes, as Micah prophesied that he would, all those who will be blessed by the Prince of Peace will be those who follow the path of peace to the place of peace, which we've noted is the church. There's a passage that John writes by inspiration that reminds us of this point that Micah makes in his poignant prophecy. It's found in 1 John 1, 7 through 9, a verse you've heard or verses you've heard time and again. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that's the path in which we must walk as children of God. But there's a path that we must take that leads us to, to the Prince of Peace, to the place of peace, which is the church, in which we can continue to have those wonderful blessings as we do what John here tells us to do. You see, I have to walk in the light, but I must first come to the light. And if I haven't come to the light, I can't continue to walk in the light because I haven't come into the light. That makes sense, doesn't it? And so to come to the light, I have to believe that the Prince of Peace is just who he claimed to be, that he is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Micah and Daniel and Isaiah and so many others who could be cited that he fulfilled every one of those prophecies in minute detail, that he came, lived a sinless life, that he shed his sinless blood upon Calvary, that he came forth from the grave on the third day, that he ascended to the Father, that he was given a kingdom, the church, and to be a part of that kingdom I must come to him through the only path that is possible, and that is through the path set forth by the Prince of Peace himself. I am the way, he said, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, John 14, 6. You've got to come to him in order to walk with him thereafter, as John describes how we do that. Oh yes, even after we've come to him and into the light, we've got to keep walking in the light, and even as we walk in the light, this passage we have noted says that we're going to sin despite our best efforts, but that blood will keep on cleansing us as we keep up our walk in the light. That's the beauty of that cleansing blood. But I've got to come to the blood initially. How do I do that? By a belief in Jesus as the Christ that will lead me to repent of my sins, turn my back upon my sinful life, confess with my lips that I believe him to be the Christ, and then be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. It is then and only then that I can enjoy the process of continual forgiveness that John describes here in the passage we've noted in 1 John 1, 7 through 9. I've got to come to the light and then walk in the light thereafter. Believe that I am he or die in your sins, John 8, 24. Repent or perish, Luke 13, 3. Confess me and I'll confess you before men, Matthew 10, 32. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. I must be buried in baptism because there the blood is applied to cleanse me. And then I rise to walk in newness of life added to the kingdom about which Micah prophesies here. And as I rise to walk, I walk in the light as he is in the light. I have a wonderful, precious fellowship with those of like precious faith who've done that very same thing. We can encourage one another. 
We can pray with, a, uh, with an attitude of confidence that God will hear our prayers offered in His will and by His will and according to His will, that I will at times fall short of His will, but I can be cleansed by the blood as I confess my sins and keep up my walk. And all of that amounts to peace, doesn't it? A peace that I will have as a result of that process that every other kind of peace pales in comparison to. That's the path of peace. I must follow the path that leads me to that place of peace, allows me to be added to that place, that kingdom, the church, by the Lord himself upon my obedience to the gospel as we've just outlined it, and then I continue to walk in his paths, walking in the light as he is in the light. But now we see some particulars of this peace as we continue through these verses in Micah chapter 4. Because in verse 3 he says, He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now there have been those who have misinterpreted, misapplied these passages as they look to some future physical coming kingdom. A time, they believe, in which there will be no more war. Every sword will be beaten into a plowshare. Every spear literally into pruning hooks. No nation will lift up sword against nation. No more war anywhere, anytime. This has nothing to do with physical hostilities. This has nothing to do with the cessation of physical hostilities. Now, it is true that if indeed every person would come to the Savior on his terms, follow the path of peace to the place of peace and, peace, and then continue to live and walk according to his will, we wouldn't have to be concerned about swords and spears, would we? But not everyone is going to do that because the Lord himself said, few there be who will find and follow this path. Few there be. So this passage is not a literal reference to literal cessation from hostility. It is rather a figurative reference to the peace that is ours in the kingdom. The peace that we enjoy in the kingdom, that inner peace. Remember John 14, 27? My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. This is a reference in Micah to that kind of peace that Jesus promised in that passage. And then, further, as we look more at these particulars, in verse 4 uh, of, uh, of Micah, but everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. None shall make them afraid. You know, we live in a time where there's a great deal of fear in our world. And certainly we live in a time when there is ground for being concerned and being very careful, being very cautious. 
being very circumspect about, about our, our daily lives and, and uh, being as safe as we can be and not taking uh, unnecessary risk and not just simply letting down our guard and believing that everybody's going to do the right thing and so I've got nothing to worry about. No, uh, we can't live like that tragically because not everyone is following the path of peace that we're talking about in this lesson. And because they are not, there are those who are just simply waiting to take full advantage of us in a variety of ways, including the taking of our physical lives at times. And it is happening every day. And so therefore, this particular of the peace about which Micah prophesies, again, again, has to do with the peace that we enjoy here at White Oak. The peace among ourselves, the unity and the harmony and the love that is characteristic of those who are in the kingdom and who understand the nature of the kingdom. And that's why this prophecy is so important because it explains to us the very nature of the church, the kingdom of which we're privileged to be a part if we're Christians here this morning, and the attitude that should characterize every single one of us, and the joy, the unspeakable joy, and the unsurpassed peace that is ours. And because we have that, while we are to be careful and we should be good stewards of our own lives as well as anything we possess, by the same token, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28? And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, recognize that while you might lose your physical life in some way, your greatest concern needs to be about the one who is able to destroy more than your body, and that is your soul in hell. Who is that? The Lord. We should fear the Lord. Reverential fear and respect, not dread and terror, but a reverential respect for the one who will have within his hand, as it were, our very immortal soul, before whom we will stand at the judgment and who will say to us either, well done or depart from me. That's the one about whom we are to be vitally concerned and to make sure that we are pleasing Him. It's interesting that tradition, and it is tradition, says that Micah, Micah, the one who prophesied about this kind of peace that was coming, did not enjoy that kind of peace in his life. And he prophesied courageously to a people who rejected his prophecy. And tradition says... Ultimately, I believe it was in the reign of Jehoram that he was thrown off a steep cliff to his death as a result of what he was saying and prophesying. Now, that's tradition. We don't know for sure how he died. But if indeed he died that way, he died as one who was living in keeping with this principle that Jesus later stated in Matthew 10, 28. Don't fear the one who can throw you off a steep cliff. You fear the one who can destroy your soul and body in hell. Make sure you're serving him. And then, continuing with the point of the particulars of peace, verse 5, For all people walk each in the name of his God, but we walk in the name of the Lord our God. Listen, 
forever and ever. Does anything in that statement remind you of the situation in which we find ourselves today, religiously speaking? It should, because we are anything but united religiously in the world in which we live, aren't we? Anything but united. We are deeply divided. Not only worldwide, but countrywide, even in this country. We are deeply divided. As there are myriads of people following different paths, claiming all to be leading to the same God and the same Christ. But those who have truly come to the place of peace by the path that leads them there and who are continuing to walk in that path with the Prince of Peace, they are walking in the name of God. Not all will walk in the path of peace, but those in the kingdom will walk by the authority of the Prince of Peace forever and ever. And that's what he means when he says here, in the name of the Lord our God. To walk in his name means far more than saying, I'm walking in the name of the Lord. I believe in the Lord. I believe in Christ. I believe in God. I'm following the Lord. To walk in his name is not to say his name or to claim to be walking in his name. To walk in his name is to walk by his authority. Remember Colossians 3.17? Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is, do all by his authority. The Lord himself said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's not the one who says to me, Lord, Lord. In fact, in Luke 6, 46, he said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Why are you calling me Lord and not doing what I tell you? You can't do it consistently. That's his point. To walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever is to walk by His authority. And today, as we've said, that authority resides here in the new covenant, the covenant about which Micah prophesied, the time about which he told us that it was coming, that kingdom, that kingdom forever and ever. And that leads to our last point, the prize of peace. What is the prize of peace? Verses 6 and 7. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. The prize of peace is, in part, peace itself. To have that peace now. But to know that we have it from now on, even forever, because the kingdom will never be destroyed. And that if we will press toward that mark, then the ultimate prize is eternal bliss. Remember what Paul wrote, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The prize of peace, not only here and now, but peace hereafter. And joy beyond comprehension. Oh yes, the prophecy of peace tells us there's a place where that peace is obtained. That's in the kingdom, the church. 
but only through the Prince of Peace by following the path to that peace and continuing to walk in his paths thereafter. And the particulars of peace remind us of the wonderful joys that we have as we partake of the wonderful spirit that characterizes those who are a part of that kingdom looking toward that ultimate prize, which is heaven itself. Can you say that you have that peace this morning? There's only one way you can say it. You can claim it, but you cannot truly possess it unless you have followed the path that leads you to that peace. As we outlined it earlier, belief in Jesus as the Christ that leads you to repent of your sins, confess Him to be the Christ, and to be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. And then He'll add you to His kingdom, the church, about which Micah and so many others prophesied. And as you continue to walk in His paths, walking in His name, that is by His authority, you have that wonderful prize of peace here and the promise of peace and joy hereafter, a peace beyond comprehension, a joy that is truly unspeakable. We plead with you to come to the Prince of Peace, to the place of peace, following that path to enjoy ultimately that prize if you haven't done so. And if you have, but you know that you've turned your back upon that path and you're walking in the pathway of the world once again, you need to come home to your first love, repent, confess any sin that's public in nature, and we'll pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who loves you. And through his Son, the Prince of Peace, we'll forgive you as we stand to sing.